I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is the Global Sport Matters Podcast. Before we start the show today, I wanted to let you know that our final Global Sport Matters live event for 2020 will be held on Thursday, December 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Arizona time, and 1 p.m. Eastern. 2020 was a year that no one could imagine. And as we head towards 2021, what might the new year bring? Well, we've assembled some of the brightest minds to help us imagine what a new lap around the sun might bring. Joining us that day will be Kavitha A. Davidson, Jessica Luther, Brian David Johnson, Myrna Valerio, Scott Brooks, Ilham Gronwald, and Martin Carlson Wall. To register for our December 17th virtual event, visit globalsportmatters.com or click on the event link in today's show notes. And now, the show. In 1960, Rayford Johnson and C.K. Yang readied at the start for the 1,500-meter race. It had come down to this final event to determine the winner of Olympic gold. Yang knew that his training companion at UCLA, and now competitor at the Games, would never let himself fall far behind. The hidden advantage, Johnson would later recall, was that this was to be his final decathlon, and he was prepared to run as fast as he had to. As the first black captain of the U.S. team that year, Rayford Johnson carried the flag and led his team around the track. It was seen as a signal of change to segregation in America and a visible response to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. And in that same year would grace the cover of Time magazine. He had already won the silver medal at the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne, and was named Sportsman of the Year in 1958. But after 1960, he turned his attention to working with the Peace Corps, visiting many countries, fostering goodwill as an ambassador for the U.S. State Department, and even joined the presidential campaign for Robert Kennedy. Rafer was there on June 5th, 1968. Robert Kennedy had just clinched the California Democratic primary when shots rang out at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He was among the men that tackled Sirhan Sirhan to the ground as police swarmed the scene. And it was Eunice Kennedy who approached Rafer about starting a Southern California chapter for the Special Olympics, which he founded and later became its chairman. He returned to the Olympic spotlight climbing the 99 steps at the Los Angeles Coliseum to light the cauldron for the 1984 Olympics. As Rafer put it, quote, was I concerned about making it to the top of the stairs? Yes. Was I thinking about whether I might trip or fall? Yes. Did I have any doubt that I would come through? No. End quote. There are those few among us whose legacies transcend a singular purpose. Gone at 86, Rafer Johnson was one of those titans. A life well-lived, impact well-made. On today's podcast, we're remembering the life of Rayford Johnson and his impact on the world. Joining us are Ken Shropshire and American Olympian Anita Lucette de France. I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is the Global Sport Matters Podcast. So joining me now are Ken Shropshire and Anita de France. Anita, before we we started uh, recording this, you had mentioned that you have had a long and healthy relationship with Ken. 
who you call K Shrop, but but tell us a little <laughs> bit about how you came to know Ken Shropshire. Uh, well, I believe it was way back in the year 1984 when, no, it was 82. Probably about 82, 82, right? All right. When um, uh, he became a member of the uh, uh, LAOOC gang, uh, we were putting on the 1984 Olympic Games and we had we were very young, let's put it that way. <laughs> we had the, the world ahead of us, and we got to figure out how to put on an Olympic Games uh, with actually no guidelines. The games before us were in Moscow, and of course, because your president would not allow us to compete, um, we couldn't get any documents or anything from them. And then the previous games were in Montreal, which many Americans thought, oh, that should be easy. But they didn't know that that's the French speaking part of, uh, of Canada. And so those documents also weren't particularly helpful. So we, we relied on our own abilities and the, advi- and, the advi- and the advice of many great Olympians, including the one, the only Rafer Johnson. Can you go? You know, I know, I know. As, as Anita's saying that, I'm thinking we we were very young. I mean, we were. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, and we all talk about this a lot. First of all, with what we were paid, we were probably the only people that would do the work. But it was <laughs> like being in a a political campaign. So we were so excited, enthused. Yeah. Um, and Anita's exactly right. Anita was, you know, a, a high flyer in the organization. I was, you know kind of on the ground, pedestrian employee. And <laughs> that, that, that I was one, I, when I came on, there were fewer than 30 people and that was in 1981. Right, and by the time I got there, there were, I don't know, 50 plus, is, is, I think it's the number they said. <laughs> it, still, it still wasn't 100. So it was, which was really pretty pretty amazing to be, right, because we did have become the first 50 employees, the first whatever, and, and people got, <laughs> Well, never mind. Let's not get into this. People got special treatment if they've been there for a long time. But I'm not going to get it. That's that's all. That's 1984. That's a long time ago. But when she mentioned, I hadn't thought about this for 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 a while. The previous games did have these operating plans, which you could just pick up four years later or two years later and just do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. And they put me in charge of the sport of boxing, which I had no idea, you know, other than street fights or whatever. I had no idea what, you know, Ali, I mean, which had nothing to do with the, the Olympics other than he, you know, it was a medalist. We we really did have to, and, and, and when we say make it up, we had to, the good thing was we had to travel around the world, meet people, understand how this worked, how to do these events. Uh, it, was, it was a once in a lifetime. And I, I tell people, even at this point, you know, all the, the blessings I had, it was the best job, best job I ever had. Not everybody traveled the world. I traveled to New York. I think that was as far as I got from LA at the time. Um, and one day when we were in the crisis after learning that our friends from the then Soviet Union, which no longer exists, uh, had chosen not to come, and we later found out why, we had this meeting and I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, this is bad. We better figure out how to make sure that athletes get there. 
Next thing I know, Peter Ubroff, then president, says, says to the assembled multitude, and Anita will take care of making sure all the National Olympic committees from Africa uh, come to the games. It's like, okay. <laughs> I'm going to do it. But, and that's the way things happen. You were told to do something that normally would be thought of as impossible, and you just figured out how to get it done. Yeah. I mean, Ubroff's famous line was, make it happen, and he would leave the room. Yeah, <laughs> you we were, make it happen. I mean, how, how young we were? We were twenty somethings, and it, yeah. and it was just too much, uh, uh, too much power and authority, and and not enough awareness of how impossible some of the the, the tasks were, and 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 and, and we're you know we're together to to talk about about Rayford Johnson, one of the other uh, blessings of the of the of the whole enterprise was. Just the, the the people that came through, and the people that, and Rayford did more than, than come through. I mean, he was he was this this imagery of um, we had a number, including Anita, a number of Olympians involved, but he was really this this imagery of uh, just this stellar person who happened to be an Olympian. You know, kind of kind of there was so much more about him, and, and that's that's when you know from. You know, he had been a hero from afar. I grew up in LA um, for whatever reason. Uh, we used to go to to track meets at, at my youngest age at UCLA. So we we, we would see uh, the great athlete Rayford Johnson when I was, you know, five, six years old. It was, it was something, and, and, and he was uh, in the black community, just this uh, unique athlete um, that, that uh, probably had a lot of, you know, to think about, it, had a lot of pressure on him to to be somebody special beyond on on the track. Yeah, he did. Anita, what what were you? What do you remember of Rayford Johnson, and especially now coming off the heels of twenty twenty, this kind of awakening or reawakening on race in America? I mean, how were how were things then for someone like him and someone like yourself trying to make it in the world of a very competitive space? Mm-hmm. My, um, I was in Boston slugging it out on the water and ate orange shells with coxswains to uh, get a place on the U.S. Olympic team, the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal, and uh, I didn't know if I had just didn't have had, had enough water that day, but I, I saw kind of an aura sitting in a boat next to Coach Harry Parker, and I thought. Oh man, I better stop looking out the boat because now I'm seeing things. And then uh, we finished our practice and went into the boathouse. Next thing I know, we're being introduced to the Rayford Johnson. And what I remember, of course, I was barefoot at the time. I remember just looking up and up and up as I extended <laughs> my hand. And, you know, we're rowers, so we aren't petite. So it's like, but this man was a giant and that he had been out watching us made such a difference to me. Again, we're in Boston. This was 76. Uh, The desegregation of schools was still happening. And uh, it was a very scary place for me. And now to see this icon, this man who my family had talked about, even though we were in the Midwest, 
we knew, I knew who Rafer Johnson was and to have actually had the opportunity to shake his hand during the time when I was uh, competing for uh, a seat in the eight made a, a world of difference to me. And uh, the fact that I was able to continue that friendship over time, friendship, I met him. You didn't know I was his friend, but I wanted him to be my friend, for sure. <laughs> for sure. But to be able to meet him again uh, in the lead up to the organizing of the 84 games and to, to learn more about him. And then after the games, as I stayed in LA, 10 minutes into being in LA, I knew this was where I belonged. So I just had to figure out how to stay, stay here after the games. And then came the LA Olympic, no, I'm sorry, the LA, I was called the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles. And he was a board member of that organization. I actually had come to know of his work already because of a friend from the rowing world who lived in, in uh, uh, DC, uh, not too far away from where um, Eunice Shriver lived. And I had actually met uh, Sergeant Shriver in 76 at the Olympic games because he had invited, um, first was only the medalist over and fortunately I was among those, but then I said, wait a minute, what about the rest of the team? What are they? Why do you have to win a medal to come to the uh, ambassador to Canada's house? So um, he relented. So he, he, he had a house full of rowers, which was probably a really bad idea looking back, but we all got to go. And, uh, and I believe Eunice was there also. So anyway, I mean, there are all these coincidences that helped me form a bond and know who Rafer Johnson truly, truly was. This was just as the notion of the Special Olympics was getting going as well. You, you know what, Anita, you mentioned his uh, his presence, which when, when I found out he passed, that was the first thing that, that I thought about. I mean, and, and the, the word that, that I've been using is is, is regal, that, that he just yeah. had this um, uh, presence, which, and, and, and the other, other black man that I think of, and, and man, it's, I mean, there's very few people have this kind of uh, presence, you know, forget other issues of politics and this and that. I mean, Vernon, Vernon Jordan has a similar kind of walk in the room mm -hmm. and he's, he's who everybody turns to. And you may not know exactly where the respect or the history of, of that man came from in, in your, in your life. Um, but, but he had, he had that, that presence. I mean, yeah, you, you, I assume you, you saw that, Throughout the board meetings and otherwise, mm -hmm. but he, he wasn't. He wasn't um, kind of different from Vernon. He wasn't in, in the situations I, I've been in with him. Somebody that talked a lot or said a whole lot. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just, just presence. Yep, and uh, people knew that when he spoke, they better listen because it's something <laughs> important that he was saying. Um, I was so happy to have had the opportunity. There was a, an exhibition put on, it might still be up at the uh, LA 84 Foundation about his life and who he was. And uh, that just happened last year, I think, 
was it 2019 right. that it happened? And there was a, um, a gathering and I had the opportunity to speak. And I was so glad I had that opportunity because I was able to tell him in public that he was my North Star, hmm. that he pointed the way, that he was the one who guided and certainly guided me in my life. And I'm so glad I had the chance to say that out loud in public to him because it's usually it's the kind of thing you think about. You know, I knew that for a long time, but I hadn't said it. So I had a chance to let him know how much he meant to me. No, and, and it's a great, great kind of, you know, as if we need them now, a reminder of you got to say these things when, when you can. You you got to relate to people those those important things when you can. I I, I you know the, as, as we're talking I'm thinking about the other, um, and I didn't this, he was not personally touching me in the moment, but when I was 13 is when the uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy assassination happened in L.A. and I remember you know I was trying to stay up with my family and and, and see who won. It was, you know, in, in the primaries and uh, wasn't able to <laughs> end up going to sleep. And and my mother came in in the morning and and I said, well, did he win? Because, you know, we wanted Bobby Kennedy to win. He said, she said, yeah, he won. And then they shot him. Yeah. And then Rafer and Rosie got him. I mean, it was yeah. kind of, kind of and, and two first Rosie Greer was 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 the other one. It was, and these were again two important men in general, and then two very important men in the black community, especially in LA. Right, Rosie hasn't played for the Rams. <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, here's here's this guy again that had won this decathlon thing that that had you know, become even more important after you know after become kind of Americans had to win that event, kind of as as, as Rayford set the tone, but. But that moment too, that I mean, that really, and then his acting career kind of put him more into into popular culture. I mean, people have seen him in you know, of a certain age have seen him in movies, probably don't even realize <laughs> that. Well, that was Rayford Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was a, 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 again, beauty of being in LA, he was a, a sports commentator for for a few years too um, uh, in LA. So yeah, so he had a, he had a real a real real presence it sounds like it was almost it's almost as if rayford there wasn't anything rayford johnson couldn't do or didn't do um and there's that iconic conic image of him running with the olympic torch right everyone says that they want to run with the olympic torch but very few people can claim that they've actually lit the olympic cauldron anita could you talk about the decision that may, that went into deciding that rayford would be the one to light the olympic cauldron in 84 well, I could, but from my point, it'd all be apocryphal. Um, because, uh, what two people, well, three people made that decision. Peter Uberoff, maybe Harry Usher a little bit, David Wolper, and most importantly, Rafer. Rafer was willing to take that risk. Those were some high, high steps. He did it once, and they said, you know, I think I need something to hold on to once I get up here and turn around and see a stadium built with people said, I don't know how I'm going to react, I, you know. So 
And the other thing about it is there was some concern because after reviewing the uh, uh, the place where he had to put the flame up to light the cauldron, there was an extra wire hanging out. And people were like, uh, put that there. Do we know um, why that's there and what it's about? So I'm pretty sure that David probably did not tell Rafer that there was a possibility of some mischief happening. <laughs> but all's well that uh, doesn't explode. And so um, I know they told him later and he's like, really? <laughs> you guys had some concern and you didn't tell me? And I guess, you know, well, you know, I'd have decided just keep going around the track instead of up the stairs or something. But I, you know, of course, they let him know, and he had the courage to do it anyhow. It, By the way, a little-known factoid, um, we know that the person uh, who passed the torch to him was uh, Gina Hemphill, um, who was the um, uh, granddaughter of uh, Jesse Owens. Is that correct? I believe that's right, correct. Yeah, yeah. Gina, Gina Hemphill, yeah. Gina, right. But who passed the torch to Gina is the question. I used to know. I don't know. <laughs> Before it went in the stadium, right? Into the stadium, from outside into the stadium, right? I know the answer. I, I give up. Me! It was you? Because <laughs> <laughs> there were three Black folks handling the torch on the last important part. Pierre yeah. de Uberoff, yet again. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, Anita gives gives the descriptor. You you have to look at, um, you know, it's all over the, the internet. You have to you have to look at the, the the tape of of Rafer climbing the stairs to light the torch. And I will say, I'm I mean, again, I've never, yeah. In the moment, that staircase that he had to go up was so narrow. I look at it now; it seems almost reasonable. But there's still no railing going up. No railing. And he had a torch in one hand. He had a torch in one hand. That, which he had to get to the top or the whole thing was going to be a mess. You know? <laughs> and when I talk about, you know, the man's presence, part of his presence is his physique. I mean, this guy, you talk about uh, uh, somebody, you know, you talk about Will Chamberlain look like he could go out and play until the day he passed away. Rayford Johnson was you know, we'll go out and beat everybody. I mean, yeah. just, 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 and, 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 and then this, this uh, lighting the, the Calder moment, he's, he's uh, uh, 49, 50 years old. And, you know, I don't think anybody could compete with, with his fitness level at, at that yeah. point. He trained every day until he had to have a pacemaker put in and that, I still am convinced that they didn't realize how large a heart he had. Of course, both the emotional heart and the physical heart. And I don't think they ever got that right because it just was really hard for him to adjust. And it meant that he wasn't able to do the training. I mean, he trained his, well, he probably helped his daughter who became an Olympian. And I know he trained with his son who just missed out on making the team uh, thereafter as a javelin thrower tosser, whatever you're supposed to say with the javelin. And uh, uh, Jenny was a, a beach volleyball player for a number of years. So, um, I mean, 
he had some genes for sure. Yeah. And his lovely wife, Betsy, they have been married since, I guess, just out of college. And uh, well, anyway, I feel so sad for her to have lost Rafer. So his legacy continues on with the LA 84 Foundation. Can you talk about how he helped shape the organization? And for those who don't know what the LA 84 Foundation is, explain what it is and then how Rafer was involved in that. Shall I, Keshav, or you? Oh, please, please go right ahead. Right. Right. <laughs> um, uh, okay. The idea, uh, and actually David Wolford negotiated this and he was so upset with himself after finding out how much money there was where we would get 40% of whatever surplus that happened after the games. If it was 10 cents, we get uh, uh, 40 cents. And the USO, then the USOC, which is now the USOPC, would get 40% and 20% would go to the national governing bodies. And David said, why didn't I say 50-50? I don't know. But anyway, that's a whole different story. If we have time, I can talk about how he did came up with the number that he came up with. Um, and, and by the by the way, before before you go on, just so everybody's clear, none of the games had made any money. We, we don't know what happened in Moscow, granted, but seventy six. I think the debts finally paid off from there. Munich. Don't yet. <laughs> Part of the problem is that there were uh, capital construction stuff. So. Yeah. They, the village where we stayed is still there and it's still housing. And, uh, you know, the subway extension still works and the other things. And that's been the problem for some time that the citizens, of course, pay taxes for things, but the games move on and we don't take stadia with us to go to the next game. They stay there and benefit the city. Yeah, the taxpayers, there were several issues, including the love affair that the mayor had with this architect uh, that designed things in, in um, thin, uh, thin something concrete, which they didn't make in Canada. And they actually flew parts of the stadium from France to Montreal, which just sounds, this is true. It sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud, but this actually <laughs> happened. <laughs> they did that, which did not amuse the local architects and construction companies and so forth. So, you know, there were strikes and all sorts of things that slowed things down, which made it cost a whole lot more to do stuff if they'd been able to do it in the timeline that they wanted. So there were, not mitigating, that's the wrong word, but there were circumstances that made it seem like a greater expense for the citizens. I just have to say that. Right. In the point being, now of the Olympic rings, true. Wolper's the great producer and great business person, but point being, it, much greater than anybody would imagine, but I don't know how much leverage he had against him to say, we want this huge percentage, 40% of, of the profits to, to to remain in Southern California after the games, because nobody, nobody really thought there was going to be anything. And it turns out to be, it was the ulti ultimate share, the, 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 the 200 and... Well, we say around 200 because we had this liquidating fund of $10 million to cover any lawsuits or things that happened after the games. And even the mid of uh, the um, liquidating fund made money, started out at 10 million, wound up being $12 million <laughs> after all of the uh, 
lawsuits and complaints and all that stuff were finished. And actually some people um, who might have gotten the uh, second ticket to an event that was already full actually gave their, uh, their ticket money back. They didn't keep it. They said, no, you guys just keep it and, and use it for uh, the USOC or the LA Olympic organizing. No, the LA 84, I should call it what we wanted to call it in the beginning, <laughs> the LA 84 Foundation. Um, so anyway, what is the LA 84 Foundation? There's this uh, bundle of money. It didn't come all at once because, you know, there are things to be done, um, including investing it so it could grow. Uh, but eventually the LA 84 Foundation was endowed with $93 million. That was a lot of money. And the board who included Rafer um, and Peter and uh, Mayor Bradley and Maureen Kendall and Yvonne Braithwaite Burke among the luminaries, it was it, because they were the members of the board of directors of the LA Olympic Organizing Committee. And that was an all-star board. Um, I, I can't tell you. Uh, it was just a wonderful board to, to work with. And um, Stan Wheeler, who had been uh, anyway, became president, he was a he was a professor at Yale Law School, um, but not an attorney. He 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 taught white collar law. Now, why wasn't he anyway? He was there, and he he loved playing uh, the horn. He was a trumpeter and grew up going down to Central Avenue. And for some reason, they let him. Uh, play his horn with some of the greats who were playing down there. Anyway, so he was coming back to relive, relive his days. But, and before he left, however, he was quite clever and he uh, convinced the board to invest in what is in a library, a, a building for the library and a pavilion for conferences by saying it should be named for the chairman of the board. Yeah, <laughs> that was so clever because who could say no to the chairman of the board? who was a big time Democrat. He'd been chairman of the Democratic Party in uh, California. And then we had Lou Wasterman, who was the, someone called him the last mogul, who was our finance committee chair. I mean, it was just quite a board and included, of course, Rayford. So anyway, because of the cleverness of Stan Wheeler, getting the board to invest in uh, uh, a library and a meeting center, uh, the foundation was just this incredible place. It was uh, much to my delight. It was housed in in a building that's on the historical register. So when later board members thought, oh, you know, we could spend less money on this house if we just move someplace. I said, okay, who's going to buy it? <laughs> it's on the historical register. You cannot do anything with how the building looks. I was okay, uh, you know, the direct, I was president, I forgot to tell you this part. I became president after Stan left um, of this organization. And uh, when the, the board changed and wasn't quite as luminous, uh, they were trying to save money. It's like, but the point is to invest in youth sports and a better understanding of the role of sport in society. Why, why are you doing this? Oh, well, you know, we could save a lot of money. And I'm thinking, yeah, you could, but who's gonna buy this? And then, okay, so 
you know, nobody wanted to buy it, of course. And so it's still there. Um, and uh, I know that Rafer and Maureen and Yvonne were steadfast in supporting, supporting me in my role as president. And again, without Rafer, Yvonne and Maureen, uh, who knows what would have happened. Uh, we do have the best collection of Olympic uh, stuff, including Olympic medals in the United States of America, second only to the IOC in Lausanne, Switzerland. Um, and they've got the best Olympic collection for sure and for obvious reasons. But we also uh, created with um, Wayne Wilson, one of my top staff folks, uh, digitized the library. So it's open 24 seven, 365. And there's so much information there. And in fact, before the IOC digitized its own collection of the official reports, we did. And so the whole world came to our library for information on, on the Olympic movement. That's too long an answer, apologies. But that's, that's the full explanation of uh, a good use of funds following the games, which, um, Nobody, nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, and when it became clear the games were going to be profitable for the first time, it, it was all kind of a, you know, wh wh where is this going to go? How is this going to work? Um, and, and needless to say, in Anita's uh, other role in life, a uh, leader of the IOC. Now, various, not then. <laughs> various capacities over the years. Well, it, it, but 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 to think of the organization now, the way it moved forward, and saying, "Well, there there is some money to be made uh, in these Olympic games, so there will never be a games that will have that same uh, kind of per capita success that the LA Games had." And 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 the the, the good and bad about it is. Um, you know, a, a great model could have been for that same kind of leave behind without all, you know, there's a lot of, uh, in the bidding for the games, now there's a lot that you have to do that, that does that. Um, but the 84 process worked out pretty pretty well in, in the end without, without a lot of uh, uh, bells and whistles and blueprints. Yeah, and um, in fact, I, you remind me of what I was given as the first of the footprint of the Olympic villages. And it was like, I looked and I said, this has gotta be a joke because what you have is a couple of walkways between a whole host of buildings. You don't know how many beds can fit in them. You don't know how many people need to live in this place or the other place. And you don't know what sort of support services the athletes need. And so the answer was, as, as, as uh, Professor Schropsteyer said earlier, well, he just said, well, get it done. <laughs> get, get it done. And I remember one moment in particular with SC because that became my, my focus point. Uh, we're in the last part of negotiating the deal with them. And it was like uh, the, the, the gentleman on USC side said to me, okay, Anita, I'm gonna say a number and you say yes or no. I'm thinking, hmm, okay. So he said, $2 million. I'm thinking, $2 million? <laughs> I have to say yes or no. How am I going to figure that out? So I stayed quiet and thoughtful for an appropriate amount of time. And I thought, what happens if I say no? Will they just jack it up more? Or is it too little? And finally I said, 
I hope looking thoughtful about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we have a deal. He said, okay, we shook hands. I left and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I've either completely undercut any authority that I'll ever have or else. So I had to go back and present it to the finance director. And, you know, this is a guy that if you said you, you needed a reimbursement for $10, you'd have to write up like 12 sheets of paper and so forth. So I went into it and I said, you know, um, that final part of the deal I, I told you about with SC, he said, yeah. I said, well, we agreed to uh, we agreed to $2 million for the part that I really need. And he said, okay, that's good. If you just said $2 million, you didn't have to write out 20 sheets or any of that stuff, but it was $10. You had to write a thesis on why that $10 repaid <laughs> somebody. So that was an important lesson I learned. Uh, <laughs> the bigger the bet, the safer you are. It really was. The, uh, it was the make it happen Olympic Games. You you only you only got in trouble if you didn't get it done. I mean that oh, really yeah. that really was the case. Yeah. But I, I just uh, I'm I'm so glad we got a chance to 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 talk to talk about Rafer. Yeah. And, and reflect back on um, the many overlaps you've had you've had with him, and, and the, to remind me of the. You know, a few instances that that I had. You know, the the other other person that had a similar similar gravitas, not as grand as those two. Tom Bradley, you mentioned, or the the former mayor of L.A. Another another guy just walking a room. Just oh, yeah. height height has a lot to do with it. <laughs> height and big shoulders. So. Yeah, um, I had I was on the board of the USOC in uh, seventy. Uh, I guess it was seventy seven. And it was uh, Los Angeles against, well, I, I don't know. LA has been so many times for the games, but it was LA against New York. New York, of course, was going bankrupt at the time. And so we have Mayor Bradley and Ed Beam. Who's about <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so the height did matter. And all of the uh, athletes on the USOC voted for LA. Um, and that made the difference, really, because I think the so-called adults in the room were pretty much split. But it was obvious to us that L.A. was the right place. And I lived in, in Philadelphia at the time. And it would have been easier for me to say, oh, yeah, New York, great. I, I, I might, you know, at least I'll be able to get there, uh, not knowing what the future would bring. But it was the right place um, because that's where athletes, and to this day, they're about, I think it's more like 2,000 athletes who live in Southern California. I'm sorry, Olympians, not athletes, Olympians who live in Southern California. So we're about a dime a dozen down here. But it's the, it's the lifestyle that makes a lot of sense to be a part of sports. It's a little bit too toasty where you guys are, but yeah. <laughs> we get an ocean breeze and we get fires, of course, and occasionally earthquakes that get your attention. But it is a, a magnificent place for people who enjoy sports. So uh, that was my first experience with Mayor Bradley. And it was almost comical to see the two mayors of the two major cities. Of course, New York was the bigger and uh, certainly less affluent at that moment than L.A. was. And Anita, you've been on both sides of the equation as being a, an Olympic athlete yourself, and then, you know, running, uh, running the Olympics on the management side, being the first woman 
to be on the IOC executive committee in 97. And then you ran the LA 84 foundation and organization for 28 years. Can you go ahead? Can I correct you? 97, yes. I was the first woman elected vice president of the IOC. So I've been on the executive board. That's okay. Um, just good. Just yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Can you imagine what uh, athletes and folks who are organizing the Tokyo Olympics must be going through? Well, I can not only imagine, I'm part of what's called the Coordination Committee, Commission. We call them commissions internationally, and same as committees here. Um, and uh, we worked with them for the seven years leading up to 2020 and uh, had to duke it out from time to time. Um, including there was a discussion about who should be the mayor, essentially the mayor of the village. And they said, you know, we have to find someone who is very experienced, so forth and so on. I said, well, not necessarily. I kind of, you know, I was going to be on, I was on the U.S. Olympic team in 1980. And then I wound up planning and running a village four years later. So, you know, and they were like, what? Because <laughs> I wasn't quite so young <laughs> at that point. But it's true. Again, we had the opportunity to do things that now it's really harder to do. But here's the thing, back to your question. Um, 40 years ago, your president, of course, you weren't born, so uh, James Earl Carter had decided, you know what, this was the beginning of the, uh, of the, uh, where we are now with our democracy. Not a penny of money went to any athlete, federal money, any athlete training for or competing at the games, not one cent. And yet the president of the United States says, well, we will not go to Moscow. I was like, what mean we? <laughs> and so I was quoted as saying, what mean we? Where was we when I was out uh, freezing a part of my anatomy training all women winter. What do you mean we will not go? Not a penny was invested by this nation. And yet suddenly we will not go, which is why I fought against it. By then I was an attorney and uh, a Philadelphia lawyer, <laughs> precisely. Uh, people used to know what that meant, not so much anymore. Um, and uh, it's like, no, you cannot take away my right. This is something I invested in. You had nothing to do with it. You did nothing to help. And why should you be able to say, uh, we won't go? So anyway, I'm not sure what I'm telling you. Oh, that's the reason I became an IOC member, because internationally, I was better known than I was here. Here, I was known as that person who just won't let this go, that child who keeps talking about it. And for the three of you, it was many years later that I was... Uh, uh, it was Mayor Villaragoso, uh, former Mayor Villaragoso. He was trying out his uh, time to be a moderator. Um, and um, I was at, I was being interviewed by him. And also there was a, an Olympic winner athlete whose name, unfortunately, I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, and one of the members of the audience I guess somehow I came to talk about the meeting in the East Room where I was so naive, I thought we'd actually get to talk with the president because I had a proposal to make. And, um, and uh, this gentleman stood up and said, you know, Anita, when you were introduced, well, I knew, uh, I knew uh, Joe Onik because I'd worked at the Center for Law and Social Policy first semester. 
And so he, he called on me by name. And so the brother who was in the audience at uh, the former mayor's house said, yeah, and we were going, that's Anita de France. She's a sister. She's black. It's like, yeah, all my life, you know? <laughs> so I forget that my name tells you very little about who I am. In Indianapolis, everybody knows who we are. But in the rest of the world or country or anyplace else, not so much. So it's like you guys didn't even know who I was, and yet I was the thorn in the saddle. You didn't bother to find out, oh, now she's a rower, so she must not look like one of us, I guess. But anyway, a long story. And uh, apropos of probably nothing. <laughs> the only other part of that meeting was that I was standing at the time and uh, uh, the president was announced entering the room. So he did, he went up. At the press conference we had later, one of the journalists said, so Anita, um, why didn't you applaud when the president entered the room? And of course, many things flashed through my mind. And fortunately, what came out of my mouth was, well, we're Olympians. We're not impressed that someone can walk across a room. And everybody started laughing. So I was saved by my mouth and not my brain. Okay, enough of me. Have you, uh, <laughs> and again, thinking about the uh, kind of the journey of, of uh, Rayford Johnson in life and, and the yeah. In politics with with Bobby Kennedy and and and, and very selectively the kind of people he he cared to to engage with. Have, have you have you had another conversation with with uh, with Jimmy Carter since you were the name plaintiff in the action against the? Yeah. Yes, I actually had two uh, because of the organizing committee in uh, at Hotlanta. Um, actually, a guy who had driven uh, President. Carter around Georgia when he was running for governor and remained friends, I had said, you know, my only regret from 84, I wasn't smart enough to know what other regrets, I'm, I'm sorry, from 80, uh, was that I never got a chance to talk with the president. And I, I would propose to him that we would do what all of the European nations were doing, which was competing under the Olympic flag and not their national flag. And that would have saved an embarrassment. It would have allowed us to do what we were already planning to do, but I never had that chance because of my naivete, thinking that the East Room uh, meeting was really a meeting, not a show. Uh, and so finally, we had the chance. We were at the uh, uh, Carter Library, which is, of course, his place. And um, he just went on and on and on. And I never had a chance to say much because then it was, you know, and the Secret Service people were surrounding him because, you know, we, in 1980, uh, the rowers all had t-shirts that said uh, on the front, US 1980 rowing camp or something on the script. And on the back, it said, Jimmy Carter's uh, threat to national security on the back of our t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, you know. So um, I think I was considered, oh, well, there's more to that story anyway. Um, but it wasn't until the next time where a friend of mine during the games invited me to a lunch. And I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. And he said, well, I just wanted to let you know that uh, President Carter will be here along with Vice President Gore. I said, oh, that's OK. You might want to let President Carter know that I'm going to be there. And this guy had me seated 
uh, the, so at the end of the table was President Carter. There was someone to his, his uh, right around the corner and that I was on his left side. And I said, I'm thinking, I'm looking at the scene and I said, you did not do this. You did not do this. And yes, he did. So we were polite, polite and it gets to be uh, um, dessert time. And this is the South, we have dessert with lunch. And uh, uh, he turns to me suddenly and he says, Anita, when are you gonna stop beating me up? And I'm sure my eyebrows were. <laughs> <laughs> the President of the United States is asking me when I'm gonna stop beating him up. <laughs> it's like, and so I said, uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, and he repeated it. And I said, well, never probably because what you did was so wrong and you took away from us something that cannot be given back. And he said, well, you know, it was unanimous in the USOC. I said, no, sir, it was not. He said, the executive board I said, no, sir, I was on the executive board of the USOC at the time, and it was not unanimous. And then he said, well, well, in, in the Congress, no, sir, there were, I forgot the number now of, of, of um, members of Congress who voted against it. And he said, well, the Senate, I said, no, sir, there were six senators who disagreed with, with this. So he said, well, well, I said, just know this, President Carter, I voted for you anyhow. But you lost. No. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he smiled and gave me a hug. Now, that's not the end of the story because then we go on to see some events and I had the great privilege of riding in the vice president's uh, um, uh, motorcade and saw a hilarious thing um, where these two Georgia state police on their motorcycles actually ran into each other. <laughs> and then I noticed that the uh, vice president travels with uh, a medical officer who came out to make sure these two incredibly embarrassed uh, <laughs> these people were okay. I'm sure they have not recovered. So anyway, we get to the, the venue and it's the diving event. So I go take my seat and then I look across the way and there's none other than James Earl Carter sitting alone, of course, with the secret service, a couple rows back. And I'm thinking, this is not a good picture. So I decide, okay, okay, I'll just do this because I, I had access to go where I wanted to go. So I go across and I sit next to him in the stadium. I got so much, uh, what's the right word? Grief. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> From members of the 1980 team who saw that and they're like, what were you doing sitting with the enemy? Blah, 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 blah. I said, you know, it was the moment and uh, it's the Olympic spirit. And I was probably out of my mind at the moment. <laughs> but no, I sat with him in part for him to stop talking about stuff that was wrong about the diving to explain what was really happening and to also continue the discussion that we almost had. And I finally had the chance, you know, it's really a shame that I didn't have the chance to make my presentation to you because I would have said, we can go and not use the Olympic flag or maybe one athlete can carry the Olympic flag in opening ceremonies, but the rest of us wouldn't go. I said, there were options that could have made it possible. And he kind of said, mm, okay. So, oh, the next dive is coming up. I was able to make my proposal, but let's say, what's it, what's it said? It fell on deaf ears. Yeah. 
He wasn't that old then. <laughs> yeah, he was a great president, and that's the only, you know, that's why I voted for him. Uh, but he was just so wrong on that. And as I say, that to me was the beginning of losing our democracy. If you don't have the right to uh, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness here, what's it about? And again, not a penny of federal money, then or now, is used to support the Olympic team. We got our own money <laughs> from the 84 games <laughs> primarily. The other thing about why the 84 games were successful was there were no, we, we made the politicians buy their tickets too. And so nobody could get hired because a politician wanted to have uh, a niece or nephew. So we were free of all of that nonsense. And that made a huge difference. I mean, it was an enormous risk because we had no financial backing. And indeed, the day the offices opened, they were uh, $50,000 in debt to the USOC. And so Peter made it from 50,000 in debt to a surplus on a budget of $750 million, a surplus of 250 million, essentially. The, the numbers will never match up, but <laughs> around that amount. So Peter was the right guy at the right time, clearly because he hired me and Professor Shropshire and also knew the important, well, actually Rafer, Rafer was the reason that Peter was hired. Um, and when I, I, I last spoke with, with Peter, um, he said, yeah, it was his vote that put me over the top. I mean, yeah, his vote that put me over the top. And, uh, and Peter acknowledged that when I last spoke with him about Rafer's passing. So, so there we go. We are, yep. we are both indebted to Rafer for jobs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and around the goes, around the rings. Thank you so much, Anita, for, for joining us. It was absolutely my pleasure. And uh, um, of course, I have more to say, or you can read my book or listen to my audio tape. But the important thing is Rafer was truly my North Star. And when things got rough, I thought of him or I picked up the phone and called him and talked to him. He made me confident about making the team in 1976. He was a part of the Olympic, you know, uh, the President's Council on Olympic Sports, where they helped change the way the U.S. Olympic Committee was structured. I mean, he was so important throughout my Olympic life, for certain. So I'm so grateful. And thank you for letting me talk at least a little bit about him and what an important, what an important man he was in my life. And we, we will link it all to my Olympic life as well. And there's, a, there's a lot more to the life of Anita de France. Thank you. Once again, that was Ken Shropshire and Anita Lucette de France. In our podcast show notes, you can learn more about the life and impact of Rayford Johnson and Anita's 2017 book, My Olympic Life, a Memoir. This episode was produced by Kendall Jones. The Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of marketing and communications is Crisal Valencia. Our manager of events and programs is Kendall Jones. Our marketing and communications assistants are Julia O'Connell and Katie Cross. To stay up to date on the latest from the Global Sport Matters team, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. 
And be sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website by clicking the envelope icon at globalsportmatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsamy. Until next time, wash your hands and wear a mask.